This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Tiny houses! Norwegian heavy water! The Salter Mundi, And Marxist alien hunters! Bobby would yell for seconds on fish and thirds. His mother said his big mouth would give him brain fever like his cousin Larry Marsh, and how would he like that? And Bobby said just fine, and his mother sent him to his room without any fish at all. Thus begins the strangely familiar, yet disturbingly alien, illustrated tale, Where the Deep Ones Are. It's part of Atlas Games' mini-mythos series, which also includes the delightful parodies, Cliff Howard, The Big Red God. Good Night Azathoth, and the Antarctic Express. All of them written by yours truly. Right now, and for a limited time, Atlas is offering a buy-two, get-one-free bundle of mini-mythos goodness. Which makes delightfully subversive gifts for friends, relatives, and especially their children. Leap online, Mythos fans! Point your browsers to atlas-games.com slash Cthulhu4kids. That's Cthulhu, the number four, and the word kids. Or follow the link in the show notes. That seems wise. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. But, oh my goodness, the confines are, they're super confined, Robin. I think that that's like a CD of uh, Frampton Comes Alive, not the whole album, because we don't have room. The dice are those little teeny-beeny dice that used to come um, uh, in like a little uh, clear thing when you get them in the, in the gumball machine. And uh, the Doritos, those aren't Doritos, those are Cheetos, for God's sake. They're that small because we're in a tiny house holding the gaming hut at the behest of Patreon backer Brian Gustafson, who asks about the tiny house movement for the homeless. The movement, he says, started a small New York community, and I'd like to drop it into my Cthulhu confidential campaign. Wait, way to go, Brian. You take a love little charity movement, and you think, how, how, what's the monstrous part of this? How, how is this evil? Uh, right. So, Robin, what do we know about tiny houses besides um, uh, that they're tiny and I'm going to go on a limb and say their houses. Right. So for the benefit of the, the non-Gustafson uh, listeners out there, this is a movement that started in uh, 2013, 2014. There's a couple of different communities. Uh, one is called the Second Wind Cottages in Newfield, New York, which is near Ithaca. And uh, basically, uh, in this case, there was a, a lot that was donated uh, by someone who wanted to create uh, housing for the long-term homeless. And uh, so these sort of cabin-style dwellings are like 16 by 20 uh, open on a donated lot and, and they use volunteer labor to produce them sort of like your habitat for humanity sort of uh, effort and each one of those cost ten thousand dollars so much cheaper than uh, your ordinary unit of affordable housing stock about the same time uh, there's a place called Cahote Village in Olympia, Washington, not at all tilting at windmills. And this grew out of sort of a, a, a rotating sort of squat style op- occupation of different uh, parking lots. And then finally, these ones are more expensive. I think the units are like, it costs them $80,000 to create. But again, it's a 
solution that works now to get people into homes, uh, as opposed to, I don't think anyone's arguing that it's a, a long-term solution for chronic homelessness, because uh, that would require the political will to spend uh, the sort of money that is uh, required to basically assign one social worker to each uh, individual person who can't uh, remain in a home. And, and often if I know someone who did this for a while and it's like almost every single client is homeless because they have addiction problems and they have addiction problems because of horrific long-term abuse over the course of their lives that they've just been through nightmare situations. And it, it explains why they aren't easily able to maintain a stable home. Or and certainly living rough on the street does not solve the problem of being abused. Rather, it offers new and exciting ways to get abused. Exactly. Um, and uh, these are folks who on their own can't, even if a social safety net exists, which it does more in some places than others, these folks are not super equipped to jump all of the bureaucratic hoops necessary in order to uh, get housing. So uh, that's why you, you know, you assign a, a social worker to them. Ultimately, if we did that in our, in our society or yours, uh, the costs of having a population of uh, chronic homeless people is actually greater than the cost of doing that, but it would be super unpopular. So this is uh, a, a solution that, that works in the moment and allows people to jump in and feel that they're doing something. And there's been a new evolution of this where now uh, different municipalities are encouraging people to build sort of single tiny homes and put them in their backyards and, and uh, rent them out. Uh, so Boston is promoting a thing called plug-in houses that homeowners build in their backyards. And there's even a company that is now uh, ma uh, making 3D printed houses that you can you can print a house in a day. Now, although this is the, still although the ones you plug into your backyard are not for the homeless necessarily, they're just ways to uh, lessen Boston's housing problem without the equally politically unpopular way of building a lot right. more they're, buildings. They're affordable housing stock that you can then make some money out of. Yeah, but the the more people who are in housing, the more space that frees up for homeless people to be housed yeah, as well. No, obviously you, you would rather have people have houses than not. I think that's yes. relatively uncontroversial except for certain parts of the Bay Area. Right. I, I think that, uh, one of the fun things about the, about this sort of 3D printed $10,000 house from a plan, uh, except being even smaller than Frank Lloyd Wright is what Frank Lloyd Wright had been trying to get done in the Usonian movement, which we, I believe we have discussed briefly in the podcast on a different episode, but the notion that every American can afford and build their own house for not much more, you know, than uh, maybe half a year salary. Uh, it was even less of course for Usonian back in the day because salaries and housing prices were uh, reversed. But, but that notion of sort of, uh, you know, you go out, you find a, a, a vacant lot, you 3D print your house, you toss it on. That's the utopian vision of, uh, of the Usonian from, you know, the turn of the last century. Uh, so it's to see it sort of coming around only much smaller is, I guess, an interesting, um, uh, commentary on a lot of things, not least architecture. Right. And it also reflects a general drive, uh, towards higher density, uh, because what are condo buildings except all sorts of tiny houses stacked on each other for the rich. <laughs> right. Although a 300-square-foot uh, condo is not going to move in most places, certainly. No. But in general, the movement is to get us to live in smaller and smaller places. Well, good luck with that movement. Yeah. So if this was an urban planning podcast, our work would be done. Yes. But now our assignment. We would, have, we would have shared our opinions and our thoughts on very serious conditions and then move on 
uh, confident that we'd solve the problem. But no, we go the extra mile because we put monsters into tiny houses, right. which is actually even worse, really, when you think about it. <laughs> yes, they really object to yeah, uh, small They are small mad places. as heck. Although if they're formless, I don't know what they're complaining about. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that, that I guess begins our question, right? Is are the tiny houses, are they, um, uh, meant as portals? Did someone go into the, the 3D printing on a different company, not the good people at, uh, Icon, but a different company? Let's call them, um, Necronom Icon, uh, have <laughs> a uh, 3D printed house and someone went in and changed the geometry. So every one of the tiny houses has the fold in the attic, uh, not the attic, the top. Uh, like in uh, the witch house in Arkham, or are the tiny houses being laid out in a pattern so that each tiny house contains a tiny piece of a sigil that when they're all laid out together across the city in a given pattern, they uh, open up a very big house indeed for some hideous monstrosity or yog soth author or, or whatever, or is there some other way to put monsters in a tiny house that I'm not thinking of right now? Right. I, I would start by taking a step back. And, you know, as you pointed out really, earlier, there's not that is, much room, Robin. You're going to have to go around the, the escritoire there. Uh, well, I'm, I'm standing outside of the tiny house while I do this. Oh, then um, ample room. Right. Uh, because what we don't want, uh, if you're taking any real social phenomenon, including uh, this uh, kind of altruistic uh, one, you want to be careful of, you know, who you make your monster. What is the source of the terror? Why are these houses frightening? Because you uh, don't want to make the chronically homeless seem like the bad guys, so you don't want uh, <laughs> to associate, associate them with monstrosity. Uh, and you want to be uh, careful about, you know, even the, the builders of the tiny houses. Uh, they're, uh, uh, perhaps some of them are entrepreneurial uh, more than altruistic, but in general, uh, this is a, a desire to, to fix a real problem. So you do, also don't want to have NIMBY horror where you're uh, <laughs> decrying the invasion of... Uh, uh, these people into your nice, safe uh, bourgeois neighborhood. You don't want the houses themselves necessarily to be the uh, source of uh, of fear. So, if it, what, what is our point of view on this? And uh, conveniently, since we're picking Cthulhu horrors, they are uh, sort of indifferent to mankind and their their social problems. So, it could be a situation that's just completely outside of the. Uh, you know, that the uh, people in the houses are being preyed upon by some ghoul or monster out in, in the swamp. And uh, it just sees them as, oh, look, they're, you know, they're kind of conveniently placed near my swamp. Let's go get them. But that doesn't really come to grips with what the situation is. So uh, perhaps the uh, the nimbiests are, are uh, bad guys and that uh, or uh, there's someone uh, who's moved in to, to corrupt this altruistic movement uh, and turn it into a source of evil so that uh, part of the investigation is finding out who's decided to uh, wreck this perfectly uh, lovely attempt to get uh, people shelter and uh, turn it into uh, something awful. So you're saying that the tiny houses are being sabotaged by the bad guy, whoever they are. I, I think that's probably the the best way to go. It's, you don't it's, wanna... it's, it's Nimby Arlathotep is out there exactly. messing Nimby with the Arlathotep. tiny houses. I mean, uh, that's, uh, that, that's certainly a way to do it. And I think that the notion that the tiny house, I mean, the way to do this symbolically, as opposed to, uh, uh to sort of read now who the good people, they shouldn't be the bad guys. I think that sort of 
well, first of all, it cuts off half your story possibilities, but also I think it's, um, it's a noble instinct, but I'm not sure it works every time. Anyway, the, my larger point is if you take it and you say, all right, let's flip it on its head. Like you were saying, the tiny house is not the anomaly. The tiny house is the refuge. And so our homeless people that are in these tiny houses on some miserable windswept vacant lot hell in Olympia, Washington, uh, because they've been living out on the street and their, their antennae are up, they're preternaturally sensitized to the uncanny and the eldritch and the bad because they've seen it, right? They've, they've fallen through the cracks of society and guess what's under the cracks of society? The titular rats in the walls or the, or the sidewalks in this case. And so they, they've seen hideous brown Jenkin running around. They've seen, um, uh, uh, little eyes floating around where there shouldn't be. They've seen all kinds of bad behavior. Your modern day equivalent of Robert Suidam running his, um, uh, human trafficking ring, whatever it is, they're woke to Cthulhu. And so they, um, uh, are, are given these, these houses on this tiny little, uh, on this miserable plat that no one has, uh, put anything economically valuable on possibly because the plat itself is cursed. And this is an attempt just to, uh, toxic dump the, the homeless into this spot by whoever it is, the city planners or whoever, but the, um, uh, the tiny house guys, the homeless guys, they realize that finally they have a place that they can make a, a, a shelter. And so whether instinctively or because one of them, uh, you know, used to be a professor before their problems happened or possibly they were a mythos investigator and that's where their substance abuse problem came from, but they have been, or, or, or they just use the hobo template because yeah. of course, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, call and then trail of Cthulhu are one of the few games that offer uh, a homeless person as your heroic protagonist, right? As a as a as a viable or even standard player character, and and so the um, uh, but but you can have any number of uh, of of possibilities for how they've figured out that that they can rig their little house to be a little knot of mythos free territory, even though it's in the middle of this uh, a blasted heath, and so. The investigators have to sort of literally step into the homes of the homeless and step into the viewpoint of the homeless to figure out what's going on. They have to talk to them, get their confidence, get their trust, and then work out how they're protecting their little tiny home. And then because they're the investigators with more resources can figure out how to apply the geometries inside the tiny home or the methodology inside the tiny home as a broader solution for the, for the vacant lot or for, you know, uh, one hopes the city at large at some point. Right. And if we're taking Brian's question, uh, very specifically, he's looking to do Cthulhu Confidential. So it's investigator singular. So you're uh, playing a guy who lives in one of these, uh, who's a homeless person who lives in one of these tiny lives houses. Lives in one of the houses. It makes it much easier. And yeah, and I think that uh, creates the sort of uh, uh, sympathy that you maybe don't have to worry so much about. That automatically gets you where you're going, that the player is in the point of view of the people who are, you know, who need shelter. And then from there, uh, that's done all of your uh, work for you and making sure that your your metaphor isn't skewed so that the if you have, you know, a city planner who turns out to be uh, in league with Nyarlathotep or, uh, you know, one of the money men behind the 3D printed houses, then you, you're already, uh, you know, dealing with something that, that, that the is part of the issue that not everybody in any. Uh, you know, safety net situation is necessarily uh, winds up having the interests of the uh, clients at uh, at heart. So you can uh, play with that, and that, as you suggested, gives you a, a wider array of uh, possible uh, solutions. And you could, uh, if you're uh, doing Cthulhu Confidential, uh, one of the things is that you don't have all the skills. Other people have different skills, so you can't have other people are all in your community who have all, uh, you know, between them, everybody living in your uh, community of, of 
uh, tiny houses uh, has all of the uh, abilities that you need to solve the adventure. So you have to make sure that you, uh, you know, protect them as well because uh, you need to rely on their uh, their knowledge to fill in the gaps for you as as a solo investigator. And that can turn into either an entire campaign in which you are playing out the the lives of these uh, uh, homeless folks. And so when you lose stability, it sends you back on your, your, uh, your addiction. And that's what's, that's what automatically is going to happen whenever you get shaken by the mythos. And so in a way playing out the sort of person who's got the lived courage to face the mythos, be, even though they know it will destroy what little security they have in the world is sort of like, uh, the traditional Call of Cthulhu scenario only, you know, sort of cranked up on the edge. But the one misstep, you know, may destroy you as a viable person. I mean, the, the, the GM, the keeper may say, nope, uh, this was one fall too many. Uh, you know, you're, uh, you're permanently, uh, shut off. You're, you're, uh, a permanent addict. You can't ever function again. You, you know, you've, you've relapsed one too many time and the, the sort of the bleak, hideous despair. That is uh, life for the uh, the chronically addicted and homeless becomes uh, amplified by the hideous despair of life in the Lovecraft universe, and you play those as themes. I don't know that that would be a particularly uh, pleasant game to play, but it might be worth doing it for a couple of few sessions uh, before you can then uh, pull back and have those characters be an NPC group that. When your player characters come and they're like, oh, well, the, the tiny house guys might be able to solve this, uh, but it's going to kill at least two of them. We know that. Oh, that's terrible. And so then you at least have some degree of that moral certainty or moral uh, gravity of the decision that a good Call of Cthulhu game should always have and that uh, you can maybe import a little of that in from the experience of having played these uh, people who are literally one bad step away from a death spiral in every sense of the word. They're playing up the idea that their community of tiny houses has a, a, a uh, ultra-Euclidean nature to it that renders that little community uh, a, a refuge from the power of, of the mythos, I think, is a way to... Uh, continue to play with those themes without spiraling into uh, such utter despair that nobody wants to go there. So you can have the idea that, you know, this group of uh, society has cast them out, but they are still protecting society. And when they really need to go and uh, rest up, uh, which in uh, Cthulhu Confidential terms is you know, discard a problem card, they can retreat uh, to their uh, tiny houses. And it's time for us to retreat to the safety of this next commercial before we brave the dangers of whatever lies on the other side. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, 
caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? The rattle of machine guns, the distant thunder of the artillery barrage, tell us that we are safely behind the front lines, but nonetheless, in that most uh, military of huts, the command hut. And uh, if we're doing the command hut, that means that Ken will be talking about a facet of military history, and I will be nodding along. <laughs> uh, this request comes from Patreon backer Tom Abella, who wants to know about uh, Norwegian heavy water sabotage. Uh, and this is a, a series of commando and bombing raids from uh, World War II, uh, in which uh, the Norwegian resistance and uh, allied forces tried to uh, keep heavy water out of the hands of the Germans. Of course, heavy water uh, is a, or at least was then, a necessary component in uh, the creation of an atomic bomb. We wanted to make sure they didn't get the atomic bomb. And uh, there was a fertilizer plant in uh, Vemork, Norway, that uh, happened to, as a side effect of producing their main product, also manufactured uh, heavy water. So that was a bit of a problem. And uh, this was known to be a problem even before the uh, Germans uh, invaded uh, Norway. So the French Duzième Bureau spirited a whole bunch of heavy water out of the country before they invaded. But if you have a factory that, uh, as a byproduct, produces heavy water, that's still an ongoing problem. And Ken, this is where you take over telling the story. Okay. The, um, uh, the Nazis have got, uh, the heavy water factory going on and everyone knows about it. They know about, it's not that, you know, the notion of Nazis should have heavy water is a mystery or anything. Everyone knows that that should be uncool. The previous existence has been to try and, uh, take it out, but there's an ongoing attempt to sabotage it by using the Norwegian resistance and using bombing raids. And so, uh, the first mission is Operation Grouse, and they drop four Norwegian uh, uh, resistance fighters into the area and have them as the advance team for what's going to be Operation Freshman. And the plan there was to drop British paratroopers in and, and destroy the thing. And sadly, uh, the uh, paratroopers uh, landed short because, uh, I guess, gliding into Norway is hard, um, even if the Nazis aren't trying to stop you. And certainly if they are, you can hit a mountainside. And that's what happened. And so the Gestapo rounded up everyone involved and uh, killed them. And so they were sort of back to the beginning. And again, what happens there is it's February 1943. And so they sent in some more uh, commandos. Uh, they've got no shortage of Norwegians who want to uh, shoot Nazis. So they um, uh, dump in a new team which is still in contact with Grouse. Grouse was not uh, compromised by the failure of Freshman, which is kind of a miracle on every level. So the uh, new team, Gunner's side, goes in and is para-dropped as opposed to glider-dropped, and uh, they uh, land successfully as opposed to not 
successfully and go in and, and uh, link up with Grouse. And those guys, however, have to face a incredibly alert German high, high heavy water plant because by now, uh, the failure of freshmen has alerted the Gestapo that, yep, this is an active target by the British SOE and by the Norwegian resistance. So the Germans have put floodlights and uh, landmines and barbed wire and all the movie stuff. And uh, just for extra movie, there is one bridge that goes across a crevasse um, uh, over the river Mana that uh, you have to take to get to the plant. And that, of course, even Nazis have figured out we should guard the bridge. And that's what they did. So our heroes climbed down into the ravine as opposed to use the bridge at all. And so they, they uh, rappel down into the crevasse. They they cross the icy river Mana. They climb back up the hill. And of course, since it's uh, February, it's got to be snowy and terrible. And the Nazis, having focused their attention on the bridge, are not necessarily paying attention to the uh, ground on the other side, where guess what? There's a railroad track leading out, which is what they use to carry the heavy water away. And they go up the railroad track, which is unguarded. Uh, thanks, Nazis. Thanks, German efficiency. And they uh, uh, sneak into the basement and plant a bunch of um, uh, bombs to blow up the, the chamber. And uh, they met one Norwegian guy. That's the only person they met on the whole raid. Uh, and he was the caretaker. And he was like, oh, yeah, blowing up the base. Oh, oh I've dreamed of this moment. Yes, <laughs> you you which, may have noticed that I am Norwegian. In fairness, may not be down to being a Nazi. I'll bet if you ask janitors and caretakers the world over, hey, we're from the British government, we'd like to blow up your building, you have a probably a surprising number of them say, oh, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the guys who run this building, they deserve to have they it run They are jerks. So anyway, the electrolysis chamber, which is the place where you draw out the heavy water uh, by means of um, uh, your various uh, methodologies, is the place that is the key, and that's the place that they get to. They blow it all up with plastic explosive, so the entire amount of heavy water that the Germans had produced is blown up. All the equipment to run the electrolysis chamber is blown up. All the saboteurs escape. It's even a better story than that, because normally you do something heroic deep behind Nazi lines, and the next story is, well, they fought bravely, but ha <laughs> ha! They went to a prison camp, but no, they skied to Sweden or they snuck out uh, to other areas of resistance fighting. And then the good old uh, U.S. Army Air Force uh, flew over and bombed the living heck out of it with um, a mass daylight raid of B-17s and then another mass uh, daylight raid of B-24s. And that was over the course of November uh, 1943 where they um, uh, uh, blew the hell out of it enough times that the uh, Nazis said, well, uh, screw this for a game of soldiers. Let's go produce our heavy water back in Germany, which you'd think they would have thought from the jump. But, you know, who knows? Well, the, the water is very heavy. It's, yeah, the it's water was already very heavy, so yeah. they, I guess they had to do that. So they, um, uh, they're going to put the heavy water into a boat the last bit of the heavy water and they're um, uh, going to sail it away uh, to uh, to Germany. And of course, um, uh, a good old member of Grouse is still lurking around and he says, hey, they've got a boat full of heavy water. You know, what would be fun. Um, let's blow up the ferry boat that is going to carry the uh, the stuff across uh, to the boat. And sure enough, uh, eight and a half kilos of plastic explosive later, we are down one ferry and down the, the last bit of Nazi heavy water. So uh, thanks for playing Nazis. But if you want an atomic program, A, don't get rid of your Jews. B, don't be jerks to the country you're building your heavy water plant in. And C, don't get on the wrong side of the United States of America. And so this is uh, sort of your uh, kind of perfect 
a wartime engagement for narrative purposes because it's about small groups of people. Enough, it's not a gigantic uh, a military engagement that it, where the in- soldiers are depersonalized. It's it's an adventuring party going in and uh, learning the mission at the beginning and uh, getting to the site of the action. And uh, there's infiltration and uh, winning over the uh, the caretaker who uh, is pottering around trying to find his. Uh, his glasses that he's misplaced. And you're even going against a Nazi super weapon, not just against something boring like a ball bearing factory. Yes, it's uh, the MacGuffin is really strong, and uh, it's a MacGuffin that uh, survives multiple engagements, so you have to keep hitting it. And uh, and consequently, there's been uh, a, a couple of miniseries in different languages. There's a movie called Heroes of Telemark, and there's a weirdly uh, there's a film uh, that was actually released. Before this whole engagement was over, uh, called the Commandos Strike at Dawn with Paul Mooney, who plays a uh, Norwegian pacifist who must finally uh, step up and become a resistance fighter. And he goes to England and then there's a raid on this strategic location and they do everything but say the words heavy water, except it was released in 1942. And this... (laughs) happens in 1943. So either uh, the writer Irwin Shaw, uh, who is one of the screenwriters uh, and uh, later wrote a bunch of other things, a good line on a top secret mission, or uh, I, don't, I don't know what happened there, but it sure seems like a, a version of that story, except uh, there's no, uh, well, I don't want to spoil it, but there might not be an escape on skis at the end. Uh, so uh, how do we use this in a gaming situation? Obviously, I, mean, I guess how just, do we avoid using it in a gaming situation? Right. You could just straight up <laughs> do the real military in, engagement and, uh, you know, make it just soldiers against uh, against the Nazis. Uh, but if we want to import it into other genres, uh, what seems like the natural first fit? I mean, uh, one of the things that you can do is you can do a secret history thing because it turns out they went and they fun ruiners are the worst. They went down and they found some of the barrels of heavy water at the bottom of the, of the ferry boat, uh, uh, stretch the lake, I guess it was. And they, uh, dredged them up and they opened them up. And it turns out the Nazis were producing defective heavy water. It was alkaline, but it was not actually heavy water. So the pure heavy water in real history had mostly been destroyed by gunner side. Now, Obviously, if the Nazis weren't producing heavy water before the final uh, bombing of the ferry, maybe the Telemark plant was only supposedly producing heavy water, and that was the, the Nazis' cover for whatever they were actually doing, some hideous uh, black magic mythos demonry thing that they were uh, boiling up out of the water, and whether that could be that they were using the sacred water from Mimir's well to boil out uh, super serum to make Nazi uh, red skulls, or whether they were taking this water and they were um, uh, filtering it through the the evil Nazi Grail. Right. To and, and if it's a, if it's a, a Shagath engineering program that explains why they're doing it in Norway. Yeah, and then why not and not where in somewhere that if the Shagath gets out, it it will hurt everybody. And also that explains because they want it to be cold so that the Shagath will be slowed down when he gets out of the plant. Yeah, I like the idea that they're making Shagath. And remember, you just have to make like one little of a shagath to have a shagath because then it'll grow like topsy so you don't necessarily have a big vat full of shagath you would make your shagath maybe even in heavy heavily alkaline water as a containment system maybe there's a bunch of little shagath amoebas and this alkaline water is the formula that keeps them from blowing up and so 
they were planning to uh, put them all in little um, uh, little uh, flasks and airdrop them onto Britain with V weapons. And that was their plan was to dump Shoggoths onto Britain uh, using this uh, Shoggoth water. And that's the real uh, thing behind it. So you can begin by taking it as a secret uh, history and say what's worse than the Nazis having the bomb. And then you can do it again and you can sort of take this and recast it as literally any sort of, of, of small action raid against the bad guy lab. Um, and the Osprey, for example, has a book about the telemark. There's a bunch of books and all of them are going to have plans of the thing and a plan of the bridge and the information that you will need to be able to just run it straight up as a, as a game, you know, where you're, you know, going after a factory that's run by, uh, you know, black magicians in Warhammer land, or it's run by, um, uh, uh, alchemists in Deadlands, or it's run, you know, whoever your, your weird bad guys are, they, they you got a, you got a pre-made factory and a pre-made raid. Right. And you could do a multi-generational, uh, thing where, uh, first scenario is the, uh, the wartime raid. Then you fast forward to fall of Delta Green and, uh, someone dredges up one of the barrels and it's one of the ones that has a, a live Shoggoth starter in it. And so, uh, the, the 68 agents have to deal with that. And then, uh, whatever it is that happens in the 68 version, you then go and run a, a 2018, uh, scenario, um, mopping up whatever, uh, loose end was, uh, was left to deal with. And, uh, I think now that we've mopped up all of our loose ends in this segment, it's time to see what other segments there might be in this four-segment podcast. I think we've got 50% of the segments. Let's see the other 50%. Let's see. when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it. Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk that RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Keep this podcast inscribed on the map alongside such Patreon backers as... Tom Bowen. Peter Nix. Philip Masters. Randy Ship, And Tenant Reed. As we unreal the vellum and make our delicate inscriptions, we hear the sonorous chanting of monks, and we think, are we in a, an illumination hut? 
Are we in a religious hut? No, we're just in the medieval corner of the cartography hut, where we are examining, per the request of Patreon backer Jake, the Psalter Mappamundi of 1262-ish. Uh, it's so named because it was found in a Psalter. It's, uh, very small. It's not a gigantic Mappamundi like you, like you see on, uh, on the walls of your, uh, your sheriffs of Nottingham and whatnot. Right. It's, and, it's and a, a Psalter is, is a book of Psalms. So book it's of like Psalms. A, yes. Yeah. We should probably say that for today's secular audiences. Um, but anyway, the, um, uh, the, the little Psalter map has, uh, it looks like it was maybe even intended as a religious uh, thing, because obviously it's the size of a page in a Psalter or a, or a gospel. And so you have a little uh, picture of uh, Jesus on the top of the, uh, of the, of the maps in, indicating that Jesus runs the world. And, and so it's, it's even more religious than your standard uh, medieval map of Monday is. And uh, those are pretty, plenty religious. And, uh, and for one thing, he's up at the top of the map, but the top is the East. Yes. Because of course it's the East that is important. That's where he's from. And so that's, uh, that's the first thing that the, uh, player characters are going to have to grapple with if they're, uh, given this. Another thing that they're going to have to grapple with is that, uh, they're going to go, oh, wait, we're in a pseudo medieval world with the church and Christianity in it. We're in a realistic pseudo medieval world, unlike almost every other one, because, uh, the, that's the main thing that is, uh, for, uh, understandable reasons left out. In, 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 in my game right now, my, uh, my players are very mad that they aren't allowed to draw a, uh, a, a line on the map to find out where they're going. They, they've got a, a, a bearing on finding the other half of their, of their friend. And I'm like, you don't have a map. Maps don't exist. You have, you have at best sort of a sketchy guess. So I'll, I'll point on the, on the real map and you can guess. But, right. uh, but yeah, the, the notion that this is the pinnacle of Western map technology will throw player characters, uh, used to, uh, bigger and better maps, certainly. Right. Uh, because first of all, it's a, it's a disc. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether we know the, the world is, is round at this point, we've decided that the, uh, that it's certainly, uh, a, a flat circle. And it can uh, be mapped on a flat circle. Yes. And the middle of the map is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the uh, middle of everything. That's yep. the apex from which everything goes. And again, uh, that's going to, uh, be difficult to figure out. So it's a sort of a, at best, it's not a navigational tool, but it is a sort of a, a cosmic, uh, map of the spiritual world emanating from its center. And, uh, you can find yourself, uh, where you are, uh, in relation to the spiritual center of the world, presumably, to either imagine yourself going on a pilgrimage or to actually uh, go on a pilgrimage. And there's, uh, you know, little uh, lakes and stuff drawn in and uh, obstacles and so forth. Uh, it looks like there's some uh, uh, crevasses. And uh, off to the side, interestingly enough, there's a bunch of homunculi. So you definitely don't want to go uh, homunculi words which I guess is, uh, is the South. So the South is full of humunculi. Watch out for them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's where, uh, according to Pliny, who ought to know, and Isidore of Seville, who made sure that Pliny was edited for Christian goodness, uh, that's where all the monsters live. They live in, uh, Ethiopia, which is Africa, uh, to us and in Asia. So they're sort of around the edge, but you can't have monsters up where Jesus is. So they wind up being jambled onto the South end. So it's India and Ethiopia, uh, not, uh, the farthest East. So you give this to your, uh, to your players in the game and say, this is what you know of the world. And, uh, you know, therefore that it kind of gives you the relationships of major things next to each other. You kind of uh, have an idea of, of where you're going. And, uh, 
you can tell that off to the west, it looks like there's uh, lots of uh, forests and stuff, uh, which is may- maybe where you're coming from. You may be working your way up from the west, the bottom of the map, uh, through the forests, and uh, there's uh, looks like some cold fronts, uh, which I assume are uh, are mountains. And uh, uh, my Latin is oh, there's Rome. There we go. That that my Latin is good enough to go Roma. <laughs> there you go. And uh, Galicia is there. So there's some familiar things. Uh, uh, Grecia is over there. So we can see the uh, what I was reading is a forest. In fact, looks like it turns into the Mediterranean, sort of in the middle there. But uh, yeah, this is not a this is not a navigational map by any means. No. This is, uh, this is a, I mean, first of all, it's a theological document. It says, this is what the world looks like. And we know that because Jesus, uh, this is how you are meant to look at the world if you are, uh, a, a proper person. So in the same way that we have ideological arguments about should we have the Mercator projection because it's, uh, it exaggerates the Northern Hemisphere and, uh, scants the equatorial people, uh, they would have had theological arguments. They say you can't have a map that doesn't have Jerusalem at the center because it doesn't teach you that the importantest thing about the world, which is that Jesus runs it, not your stupid notion of how far is, um, uh, Spain from here. Uh, that's not what maps are for. So really what this gives us is sort of a uh, a list of the known places in the world, not necessarily even their relationships to each other. But we can look at the map and go, oh, there's Ethiopia, there's Egypt. These people know about this place. And so uh, you can have your players point at a spot on the map and go, okay, what's this city? What do we know about that? And then uh, they're not using the map to navigate when they're uh, uh, moving from place to place, but they're using it to decide uh, where it is that they want to go in case uh, Jerusalem is not the obvious place they want to go. Uh, they uh, sort of know, well, Ethiopia and Egypt, they're kind of near to each other. Uh, let's head off kind of that direction. And then we'll, when we get there, we'll ask for, you know, more precise reading on how to, how to get places because uh, we'll probably have to hire a caravan or a guy with a boat or, or what have you. Anyway, uh, what matters in this world is not uh, a beautiful, perfect national geographic map, but, uh, uh, it's a list of places that you could possibly want to go. And, uh, places that will, uh, provide you with, uh, useful information about the world. Like, uh, for example, um, when you go all the way out to the east, you see those two sort of lumpy, uh, looking things. Uh, if you look at the Red Sea and you go the next one over, uh, you have two trees, uh, which are the Arbor Solis and the Arbor Luna. And that means the trees of the sun and the moon and that they grow uh, all the way out in the east, that means you're heading towards the eastern paradise. And the notion is that because Eden was eastward in Eden, according to the Bible, that means the farther east you go, generally the better stuff is going to get. And so you see the little picture of uh, Adam and Eve in the tree uh, uh, right there at the, at the very tip. They look like they're in a jar, maybe, that tumped over, and you can see the rivers flowing out. That's the Garden of Eden that is mapped, and that tells you what is important. The Garden of Eden is to the east, and no, you probably can't get there because look how far it is. Right. Uh, and, and all these little sort of decoration-y things, uh, many of them are going to be uh, not so much uh, map coordinates or anything like that. They're going to be reminders of things that you should already have known because you should have been learning it in monk school. So sure. Alexandria is just a, a, a map uh, of uh, the city, Alexandria on the wrong side of the Nile Delta, I should point out, but it's real goal is to tell you, uh, remind you of Alexandria, remind you of Clement of Alexandria, remind you of all the important things that have happened in Alexandria. Not that Alexandria necessarily matters, you know, much of a jog to the guys in 1262, 
but that the history of Alexander is the important thing because the map is about the way that the world that we live in was created. And one of the important parts of that was Alexandria. So it doesn't really matter what side of the Nile it's on. The important thing is you have to know about it. Yeah. And once you get there, you'll notice what side of the Nile it's on. And, yeah. Uh, you'll figure it out. You can ask someone. Right. And uh, if someone complains about your map, you know it's uh, purely symbolic. Although uh, the far edges might have a magical realist aspect to them. You yeah. might actually be able to get to... Uh, the tree of the sun and the moon, which is as close as you can get to Eden. And by the time you're uh, reaching out to those, uh, uh, the sort of green area around it, that suggests that the uh, flat disk of the world is surrounded by a sea on all sides. Mm -hmm. The river ocean, as we know. Yeah. And you might be tempted to, uh, uh, do you uh, get on that sea and then try, does it, uh, do you try to sail to the edge, uh, kind of dangerous, or do you keep going around and uh, use that as a shortcut? Uh, to get back home to the uh, weirdo-looking face that uh, represents uh, the West. And now, I think the, one of the problems, though, you sail around on a shortcut, you're going to be going behind the Wall of Alexander, uh, which is uh, very clearly marked on the upper... It's about, uh, looks like, 10 o'clock on our, on our map here. So the, um, uh, the, the Wall of Alexander is what Alexander the Great built to pen up Gog and Magog and all the, uh, the tribes of the devil so that they wouldn't come out and pester decent Christian folk, uh, because that was Alexander the Great's big priority. Um, but there <laughs> yes, it is. That was well known. There it is right on the map. And that's one of the fun things about medieval geography, of course, is taking it from the symbolic down to the literal and having adventures there. So, uh, if you are in a game of, uh, straight up medievalia, your, uh, say your Ars Magica might be an excellent place, you have to go out to the Caucasus because you know that this magical thing is only produced by the tribes of Gog and Magog. And so you have to get to the Wall of Alexander. You have to get through the gates of Alexander or over the Wall of Alexander. Or maybe, as you say, let's sail around the north side. What could go wrong? Nothing. And uh, and then you uh, have that sort of place as an adventure as well as, as a moral story. Uh, well, I think the moral of this story is that we've uh, traversed the world. We've avoided Gog and Magog, but we can't avoid this lovely, beautiful, friendly commercial that isn't at all trying to rip our heads off. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? The screaming of the alien big cat out on the moors, the slavering of the chupacabra wearing its uh, Che Guevara beret, 
And, uh, oh, there, over in the corner, there's the gray alien and the Nordic alien uh, sitting there enjoying a kombucha and slating the reptoids as usual. Tell us that we're once more in that most ill-defined, that most paranormal and mysterious of huts, the Liptony Hut. Also, uh, listeners, you may have noticed that this so far has been an all-request episode. And what's better than a segment requested by a single Patreon backer? Why, it's one requested by two, count them, two Patreon backers, because both Ludovic Schumat and Ian Carlson uh, spotted in the outline a uh, survey of the history of Marxist ufology. Uh, we're going to have a link to that article in the show notes. So, this story begins with somebody we've already covered in episode 255, Jay Posadas. He was a Latin American Trotskyite and the first to uh, connect uh, UFOs and communism. And then continues on to other figures. Uh, but can, uh, can you very briefly uh, encapsulate, for those of us who do not want to go right back and listen to that segment, uh, who uh, Jay Posadas, a.k.a. Homero Romilo Cristali Fresnelli was. All right. Uh, very basically, uh, our boy Posadas was a Trotskyist, which means that he uh, was uh, on the losing side of the Communist International and uh, built a sort of a uh, generalized uh, bunch of, la- of labor unions, uh, specifically amongst uh, workers in Brazil and Bolivia and a little bit in Cuba. And so... Um, uh, he was, as a Trotskyist, he wasn't going to be able to keep going on in Cuba, but he stayed uh, bouncing around South America and possibly because his own vision of the apocalypse was being argued over, he decided that a newer, better apocalypse was going to occur and it was going to occur once the nuclear war had cleared away capitalism and then the aliens would use that as the signal to come by and, uh, and, and uh, uplift us to proper Trotskyist communism, not stupid bad communism. And, right. uh, the fact that he had, he came up with this, uh, fourth international during the Cuban missile crisis may tell you, uh, between that and Castro rounding up his buddies and tossing him in jail, uh, may tell you where he gets the impetus for this specific uh, apocalyptic vision. Right. And I got to say, these are clearly Trotskyite aliens because they're not intervening to prevent the apocalypse. They're discussing what to do long enough that the apocalypse happens and then they're picking up the pieces. So yes, yes, on, they're on brand Trotskyist right. aliens. Well, you know, that, that the thing about Trotskyism is it recapitulates under alien conditions. So the, the, the Trotskyists on, on uh, Alpha Centauri or Zeta Reticulum are, they're sweeping by and they're saying, well, look at that. The Earth uh, Trotskyists are are totally on brand because they're just sitting on the sidelines, getting chopped in the head with meat axes. Way to go! That 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 shows that after the nuclear war, we'll be able to come in and um, uh, uplift the survivors. Uh, right. I think. And, in and fairness, while they're while they're discussing this, the, the Lenin stallion comes up behind them and sticks and, them and with whacks them with a the with a ice axe. Yeah, <laughs> that's the way. That's the way of the world. Don't turn your back on the Lenin stallions. I think that's a lesson we can all learn. Right. Um, I think at the beginning, though, of this. Uh, uh, exciting world is a real scientist named Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, who was the father of Soviet rocketry or Russian rocketry even, and was also uh, considered by uh, people like Robert Goddard to be the father of rocketry and full stop, the the big guy. Um, he was a um, uh, self-taught, basically, engineer. He was inspired by Jules Verne. He says, well, if Jules Verne can write about it, surely then we can do it. And he begins uh, studying aerodynamics. He works up a uh, 
powered uh, flying machines. And in 1896, he works up the theory of rocket propulsion and is at the same time as he is being, uh, uh, his mind is being expanded by the possibility of rocketry. It is also being expanded by the possibility of socialism because uh, our man Tsiolkovsky, much like many, many, many Russian intellectuals of the time, uh, thought being run by an inbred hemophiliac is a terrible way to uh, do things. Surely something must be better. And it's hardly his fault that he thought maybe socialism was the answer. He was a rocket guy. He's not an economist. Um, and uh, But he very much believed that the, um, uh, that the world's uh, job, once they had rockets, was to unify under a, a condition of brotherhood and to go looking for other alien races because the math, again, would indicate that if we got one uh, bunch of rocket building uh, uh, species on one planet. There must be a zillion of them out there in the enormous world. And so uh, Tsiolkovsky is sort of uh, never purged from the history of uh, communist intellectual thought or Soviet intellectual thought because he is uh, woolly headed enough not to come down on a single side, unlike a Trotskyist uh, rocket guy might have been. Yes, it's important to uh, A, maintain uncertainty and B, know how to build rockets. Those are both ways to, and in, in fact uh in uh in in khrushchev and stalin's russia it, it, knowing how to build rockets was not enough <laughs> lots of guys knew how to build rockets and found themselves full of gulag fun and not actually building rockets yeah he had, he had to have some political savvy as well as the rocket thing very key very key but uh our boy um uh, Tsiolkovsky is i think one of the reasons that a, 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 a trotskyist in argentina is reading uh about rockets and aliens instead of uh proper things like the relation of capital to finance and uh, and doing that work. And so once Posadas moves uh, to the next level, uh, reincarnates on Mars, as Flammarion would say, uh, he has to leave his movement in the hands of his uh, successors, some of whom you suspect got into it for the UFOs. And right. um, because Posadas only wrote about UFOs once. Right. Right. And he believed in it, but he was like, I solved that problem. Uh, we have bigger Trotsky's fish to fry. Yeah. Well, when the aliens land, I'll, I'll have more on that. But in the meantime, mm-hmm. uh, grain production. Um, now, right. uh, so his, uh, followers include a guy named, uh, Dante Minizzoli, who was, uh, in the left wing of the, uh, Peronist movement, that most confusing of movements. And he <laughs> was the one who, uh, wrote a lot about UFOs. Yeah. He liked the UFOs. And th- this is the best thing about him. Uh, I'm sure there's many other things that are great about him, but he did uh, political readings, socialist readings of ufology texts. So he would take a book by Jacques Vallée and he would say, well, if UFOs are the same thing as fairies, what does that mean from a Marxist perspective? And if, if there is one place that Marxist criticism surely has a place, it is in deconstructing UFO texts. Uh, so he, um, uh, he became a, a stand for people like J. Allen Hynek and for Jacques Vallée. He wrote Jacques Vallée a lot of letters saying, uh, hey man, I've figured out that you're, um, uh, sound Marxist thought to which one imagines Jacques Vallée said, uh, how nice for you. <laughs> and then <laughs> changed his address. Yeah. But, uh, I, I mean, he was, he was, he was down. He was like full on, uh, saucer head as right. well as one assumes also trying to not get murdered by the Argentine government. Right. And so as a good socialist, notice that, uh, for example, the, uh, ancient astronauts theory was, uh, uh, a wee bit Eurocentric. Uh huh. <laughs> uh-huh. A tiny bit. So he's, he spotted the, uh, 
incipient uh, uh, racism and, and right-wingism in a lot of this uh, thought. Um, but he had a, a follower as well named Paul Schultz. Uh, he's got a German name, but he's a German-Argentinian. And uh, after Posadas dies, he starts receiving telepathic messages. And uh, and eventually he's, he seeks knowledge of the, the nature of these messages in East Germany, where he goes and hooks up with a uh, Swiss-German ufologist named uh, Billy Meyer, uh, and he knows all about the Plagiorans. Uh, so tell us about Meyer and the Plagiorans. Billy Meyer's uh, uh, Plagiorans, or Plagiorans, they're from uh, space. They uh, show up and communicate with you both by landing as UFOs and uh, telepathically. Meyer has a bunch of photographs of the Plagiorans. Uh, that, uh, indicate that the Plagerans based their interdimensional spacecraft on tableware available in Swiss, uh, resort hotels, um, which is fascinating information. And I'm surprised that the UFOlogical community has suppressed this, uh, this fact. Well, they're, they're trying to make themselves accessible to us. So naturally they would build their saucers in the forms that uh, we find comforting. And what could be more comforting than Swiss tableware? Exactly. And the other thing that is uh, important about to know about Billy Meyer is that unlike your communists, your straight-up commies, he believes uh, that he is a reincarnated prophet and that he is the reincarnation of um, Enoch, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jesus, and Muhammad, and uh, that he would then be the last prophet and the reincarnation of this prophetic spirit in mankind. So that is... Not what you necessarily expect from your commies is that they will be down with a guy who is also Jesus. Right. And he, he's a contactee as well. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, uh, the first entity that he made contact with died. So yeah. in 42, he meets a guy named Savath and Savath dies in 1953, which I think yeah. is a, a great detail because uh, uh, normally you think of people's aliens as being, you know, immortal or beyond space and time. But uh, to have you know, your your first uh, uh, handler, uh, you know, die of, he was elderly, you know, and he died of space old age. Mm -hmm. And to be replaced by other ones, I think that's a, a, a great little wrinkle of verisimilitude in your context. Well, the good news right? is that Savat's granddaughter got in touch with Billy Meyer because, you know, she probably was going through her granddad's space things. And so, oh, look at that. I, the reincarnation of, of Jeremiah uh, on Earth. I, I should get in touch with him. He was he was so such a good friend to, to Savat. Uh, during the last years of Stalin for some reason. And, uh, we're gonna, we're, we're just gonna get in touch. That'll be, that'll be great. And she calls him up and he's like, Oh, that's lovely. I didn't, uh, it's Fath. He just showed me pictures, but you've grown up so much. Uh, the, the, re the reunion, now that you sort of mentioned it, is, is probably a beautiful thing. Right. Um, uh, Billy Meyer is still with us. Yes. But unfortunately, he, Ticking yeah, along. he had a bit of a mishap in 97, uh, when his ex-wife, Calliope, uh, started revealing things. And, uh, she not only revealed uh, what you were alluding to earlier about the similarity between trash can lids and tableware to his UFO photos, but he, he had photos of some of the extraterrestrial women he met who turned out to be very, very similar to, uh, Dean Martin's backup singers, the gold diggers. The gold diggers. Yes. And, you know, if, here's the thing. If more Marxist ufologists uh, believed that, uh, Las Vegas showgirls were the incarnation of aliens. I think they'd do better. Right. I but think they just that, lean into it. Right. But, but Meyer himself does not seem 
particularly Marxist. It's his no, Paul no, Schultz Meyer, guy, as, under- as I said, is is a, 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 a spiritual con man, not a Marxist con man. It's all different con manery. Right. Uh, I should say, though, in context with your discussion about the ancient aliens, that a different uh, uh, Italian communist named uh, Peter Colosimo, uh, which is also a pen name. Uh, his real name is Colosimo, though it just doesn't begin with a K, wrote a big ancient astronaut book, which uh, many people consider to have been performance art, not to have been a real theory. And that his art, his uh, attempt was to sort of in a Dadaist way present increasingly ludicrous, abstracted and plagiarized arguments for the existence of ancient astronauts as a way of demonstrating the fundamental intellectual vacuity of, uh, the, of, of that thinking. Now, the trouble is it's very, very hard to tell an Italian intellectual from an Italian practical joker. And so, uh, the, and in, and in some cases they hop back and forth over the line just to mess with you. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know to what degree you can say, uh, that Peter Colosimo is definitely, uh, taking the piss. Uh, but, uh, we do know that he was a Titoist, which is a whole different kind of, uh, guy Stalin hates, but is still a communist. And so he's another, uh, intellectual, ideological strand of our uh, commie ufologist guys. So, where does this get us in terms of uh, a story hooks? You could actually have the aliens land, and they may have uh, been reading this material, and uh, they weren't Trotskyites to begin with, but they expect, uh, in order to be welcomed properly, that they have to uh, you know, have some dialectic to lay on people. So they may arrive expecting a Trotskyite world government and uh, wonder what the heck is going on. Is there any way to do this that is not inherently satirical? <laughs> I mean, the thing is, Trotskyist alien hunter is just funny. I yeah. mean, you can, in theory, have a because situation... Because something super serious and po-faced, right. twisted to elliptony and grays and reptoids. And, and, and I, I think the, the way to do this, maybe, is to have a, uh, a scenario... And you could do it in Fall of Delta Green really easily. You have some communist... Uh, guys, uh, Posadas is writing his UFO stuff in 68. Um, uh, Minazoli is, is doing, uh, UFO stuff in 58. Our buddy Colosimo's book comes out in 65. So we've got a lot of these communist uh, alien hunters that are big in the 60s. And you can have them as sort of the hilarious cover story for something that's going on. And, uh, GRUSV8 is going in and killing a bunch of these guys. And it's like, well, are they, uh, being killed because they're Trotskyists and the uh, KGB is under Andropov is beginning to sort of uh, sweep up loose ends or are they being killed because they're up to something? And when Delta Green investigates, it's like they've accidentally stumbled onto Azathoth and they've interpreted uh, this idiot chaos at the center of the galaxy escorted by flautists in Marxist terms in the same way that um, uh, Schultz is doing Marxist readings of Valley. They're doing Marxist readings of the Lovecraftian uh, space uh, reality. And uh, the brethren uh, from Yugath are, uh, you know, they're uh, maybe they're uh, Leninists, not Trotskyists, because they believe in extractive uh, minerals instead of uh, uh, they, they believe in conversion by the brain, not conversion by the word or something. And so there could be a thing where the Trotskyists have got like uh, 
just enough to make themselves a threat, but they don't even understand what it is they're doing. And so you can keep that sort of comical superstructure. And then the horror comes with the sudden drop into, oh, no, this is serious and real. It's as real as being shot in the back of the head by GRU SV-8. And it's as real as whatever they're up to. And if GRU is killing their way through the movement and they start with the incompetence, the hardcore gets more and more desperate and more and more uh, willing to, uh, you know, bring about the apocalypse in good p- posadist fashion. And that can be the thing that your agents are in the middle of. Right. Because any belief in benevolent aliens, uh, whether uh, it is uh, hippy dippy California or Trotskyite, as soon as it turns out they're me go. That changes everything. Yeah. Um, and in Fall of Delta Green, uh, if you get all the way to 1970, uh, then you've got the Red Brigades and uh, similar groups. And so that you can then have much less charming people uh, believing, uh, you know, an, an offshoot starts to believe in aliens. They pick up Assadism and they realize that, oh, well, uh, the aliens are only going to arrive once we trigger the apocalypse. So... Let's get about that, shall we? Yes, exactly. You can have um, sort of a Posadism of the deed uh, that uh, believes in triggering the apocalypse, and that movement can... I mean, you can even have them trickle down into the modern-day, either a modern-day Cthulhu or a modern-day Esoterror uh, movement, where they're they're attempting to open up the apocalypse, and they think that the Outer Dark is aliens, but it's in fact the Outer Dark. Uh, well, we've... Uh Ended our uh, our first podcast of, of 2019 uh, by bringing about the end of the world. So I think uh, it's a good can, start. Uh, yeah, we can <laughs> declare a job well done. Uh, so uh, thanks to all of our Patreon backers for supplying all of those great questions. And we will be back with more of this next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast nestled in its snug domicile alongside such Patreon backers as... Ben White. Volpine. Jamie Twine. Patrick Joint. And Adam Grotyon. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Nod Knowingly if you're a Tulpa. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>